Now, the truth about him is told. Of his family, destroyed by violence. Of the Indian who became his brother. Of the woman that fate denied him. Please come back. Now, the mask is lifted. Who is that masked man? And the man is revealed in the legend of the Lone Ranger. Rated PG. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. That song will light you up like a Ric Flair chop, boy. This is the AIM song, the American Indian Movement song. This is an honor song. A lot of times when the drum uh, is opened up by the singers, the drum groups, they'll open with an honor song, just kind of as a way to thank all of those and pay our respects to those, uh, our ancestors, those who came before us, those who worked so hard, those who continue to work so hard in our Native American communities. I recorded this song live back in October of last year at the Sons of Muskogee Men's Summit. The Sons of Muskogee is a men's group that I am honored to be a part of. I tried to do a lot of work with needy families, children's services. At the summits, it's just an amazing time for us to get together, kind of lift each other up. I have an opportunity to, to talk and, and fellowship and just, you know, spend some good time together. We had singers from all over uh, our areas, uh, our, our Muskogee areas. We had uh, Son and uh, Major McHenry come out and sing some beautiful, beautiful Creek hymns. Uh, we had the Kozer singers, this is what you're hearing now. And we also had Ben Yahola come out and sing some folk songs. And if you're interested uh, in the Sons of Muskogee groups that we have, you can always email me at, at scodincinema at gmail.com. You can drop me a line on the Facebook page. The American Indian Movement song, though, uh, like I said, this is an honor song. The words are, I can't really get too much into that, but the translation basically is, is something along the lines of, um, together we, we shall be strong, uh, the seventh fire has been lit, and we are living well, and so, like I said, they usually open up the, the song, uh, the drum, of an honor song like that, so, thank you so much, Mahe Legabasji, welcome to episode two of Skoden Cinema. I am your host, Turtle. We are broadcasting today from the Sweat Lodge Fitness Center here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, my home. We are going to be discussing a lot today, so I'll try my best to, to not bore you. There is a great chance, though, that by the end of this, um, I will have all of my first podcast jitters out so that I'm not stumbling and, and, and you know, all falling all over my words. And there's also probably a 90% chance that you will be so sick of hearing the William Tell overture uh, of this because uh, that is 
one element of when discussing the Lone Ranger that, that must be talked about and must be heard. And it's very hard to even find a clip that does not contain that song. So my goal today is to kind of educate you uh, about the history of the Lone Ranger and the Tonto character and also to drill the William Tell Overture deep, deep, deep into your brain, uh, your frontal lobe, where you will, will never forget forget that song. So uh, if we're ready to get started, a Skoden, The Legend of the Lone Ranger, 1981. got those hot rocks going there. I'm going to start the podcast today by uh, reading off the description on the back of the Blu-ray that I have. Uh, this is from the Shout Factory. If you cannot pick up the Blu-ray and you want to see this movie, there are many ways you can see it. Uh, you can pick up a very cheap copy on uh, eBay on VHS uh, that is available. There's also a DVD that, that came out uh, a while back, probably 10, 10 years or so ago. If you uh, just feel the need that you don't want to pay for it and you want to watch it for absolutely free it is available on youtube uh i don't encourage you to do that i always encourage you to, to buy these things so that the you know the you know they gotta eat <laughs> some of these people gotta eat but anyway uh here 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 goes the, the back of the box it says defender hero legend the untold story of the man behind the mask comes to life in the legend of the lone ranger when ruthless bandit Butch Cavendish, Christopher Lloyd, ambushes a team of Texas Rangers, only John Reed, Clinton Spilsbury, survives. Enlisting the help of his childhood friend Tonto, Michael Horse, and donning a mask, Reed saddles up a fiery horse with the speed of light and a cloud of dust and a hearty high silver. And one of America's most beloved and enduring symbols of justice is born. Also starring two-time, two-time Academy Award winner Jason Robards as Ulysses S. Grant. The legend of the Lone Ranger is a thrilling and dramatic, I don't know about that, uh, reading of the journey, uh, excuse me, retelling of the journey of two heroes, we'll edit that out, uh, who have captured the imagination of fans for over 80 years. The legend of the Lone Ranger rides again. So hopefully if that's not enough to entice you to want to check this movie out, maybe the, the podcast will. Uh, we shall see. Uh, but where did this come from? Where where did the le- where was the legend of the Lone Ranger actually born? Uh, it first appears on a radio show uh, in 1933 out of the Detroit area. There's a bit of a, a con- discrepancy or a little controversy actually over who owns the intellectual property of the Lone Ranger. Whether it's station owner George W. Trendle. Or is it the writer, the hotshot freelance writer, Fran Stryker? Now, I will uh, give to you all of the research that I've dug up on the subject, and I will leave it up to you over who you think uh, owns the rights to to The Lone Ranger. Starting with George W. Trendle, he was uh, sort of this tough, hard-nosed, no-nonsense businessman, and He got his start by negotiating movie theater contracts in the Detroit area uh, back in 1928. Back then, Hollywood ran on something called the studio system business model, which meant that five Hollywood studios, Paramount, Metro-Golden-Meyer, 
uh, uh, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and RKO combined, they owned and controlled all facets of film production from writing to directing to costumes to uh, uh, producing uh, film lots. I mean, and they had these people like in almost these ironclad contracts that were almost impossible to get out of. Uh, this continued up until the 1960s. But in the 20s, it was really a hard-nosed, uh, very manipulative business model um, because not only did they own all facets of film production, they also controlled all of distribution, film distribution as well, which meant that movies that were made by Paramount only were allowed to play in theaters owned by Paramount. And by doing so, that guarantees sales and exhibitions. And it's, like I said, it's, it's very manipulative booking techniques. And uh, Trendle got involved in that by negotiating a contract, uh, being a, a, a lawyer, uh, back in 1928 when a local movie theater owner named John H. Kunsky offered him 25% ownership in his theater chain in exchange for his services. So he needed him to kind of negotiate a contract because he didn't know what he was doing. So uh, Trendle is hired as, as his lawyer and he negotiates this contract. John Kunsky, though, he is an early film enthusiast with an unfortunate last name who was the first to kind of bring the Nickelodeons to the Detroit area. Uh, the Nickelodeons were so successful, uh, in 1911, he began building the first actual movie theaters in Detroit. Uh, as the film uh, business exploded, by 1928, he owned over 20 theaters, including four of the largest movie theaters in that in the Detroit area. Uh, once that the studio production companies saw how much money these local theater owners were making, uh, of course they wanted to cut of that action. And what ends up happening, unfortunately, is that Trendle and Kunsky were sort of driven out of the theater business when Paramount Pictures uh, president Adolf Zucker acquired that area, uh, acquired the territory, and he began pressuring all of the local theater owners to start selling out to Paramount. Uh, Trendle, being the hard-nosed businessman that he is, he negotiated a $6 million deal, which you know I don't have the inflation calculation in front of me, but I, uh, that has to be, in 1928 dollars, a substantial amount of money, uh, which transferred all the theaters to Zucker, who immediately just monopolized all of them and formed something called the United Detroit Theaters. As part of the deal, though, Trindle and Kunsky were no longer prohibited to ever re-enter the movie theater or movie business again. So they, they, were, they were basically you know, shut out of the theater business, shut out of movies. So the two men took that $6 million payout and they kind of switched their focus over to a new form of entertainment that was beginning to develop, uh, something called the radio. And in 1929, they formed this new company called King Trendle. Kunsky, uh, having kind of been embarrassed by having his name sullied as, as a, you know, a uh, being a sellout uh, to, to Paramount, he changed his name to uh, King, which I think was probably the, the best decision that he made. 
Uh, but together they formed uh, WXYZ, uh, a Detroit radio station, in 1929. Uh, during that time, though, the, du- the duo began expanding their broadcasting power. They began to produce radio dramas. They hosted uh, locally produced music programs. And Trendle, uh, sort of being the, the tightwad uh, that he is, uh, or that he was, uh, he began to specify that uh, you know that the music that they played on these shows should be non-copyrighted classical music, uh, because that way uh, everything that they were using on the on the program was royalty free, and they didn't have to pay any money to use it. Two of his favorite musical pieces, though, would go on to become iconic. Uh, the first one being uh, Flight of the Bumblebee by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov uh, that he used in a radio drama called uh, The Green Hornet. And the other being uh, the William Tell Overture, which became the Lone Ranger theme. Uh, the station also began looking for local writers because they were much cheaper to, to pay for radio dramas that the, they were trying to develop. And one of the writers that he uh, discovered was a young hotshot out of Buffalo, New York, named Franz Stryker. Uh, Stryker uh, is born in 1903 in, in Buffalo and dropped out of college. He decided to move to New York City, and he briefly joined this amateur theater company where he started to act a little bit. Uh, he soon took his talents and joined the staff of a radio station in New York City where he worked not only as an actor during some of the radio dramas, but he also worked as the announcer. In 1929, though, he decided to move to Cleveland and he started announcing at a radio station there. He also began uh, writing. That's the very first time he began writing and he wrote his very first radio drama. It was a, uh, a script based on the biography of American songwriter Stephen Foster. Uh, For those of you who don't know who Stephen Foster is, I actually had to look it up too, I'm so sorry. Uh, He's the guy that wrote some of uh, America's classics, uh, Camp Town Races, Oh Susanna, and Swanee River. Uh, I'm I'm betting that this is such an entertaining drama that that he wrote. I can't imagine what that would be like, uh, a biography of that guy. But anyway, uh, he soon soon started branching out, though, into uh, writing original material, uh, including skits. He was writing half-hour mysteries and westerns. And soon he began drifting to freelance writing. So he was writing for the Cleveland radio station, and he began selling scripts all over the nation uh, uh, freelance. And he sold the one of the scripts to George Trendle, and thus began a very long and complicated relationship between those two men. According to Silver Bullet Magazine, yes, there is a Silver Bullet Magazine dedicated to nothing but Lone Ranger folklore. Uh, yeah, I, I did that for you guys. I, I looked those up and, and read, read through those. But uh, anyway, according to Silver Bullet Magazine, Trendle, uh, in 1932, uh, he began discussing ideas to create a new radio series with a cowboy as the hero. 
and he wanted this hero to sort of have this mysterious and mystifying persona, such as some of his favorite pulp heroes, uh, Zorro uh, or Robin Hood, you know, the, the kind of the uh, uh, vigilante, the, the masked man, the mysterious man. Uh, he wanted the target audience to be relatable to anyone, but he really wanted to focus on selling it to children. And he insisted that this hero have a high moral standard, uh, which meant that the show could contain very, very minimal violence and very, very minimal romance because the kids just didn't really want to hear about that. He j started jotting down some ideas for uh, the basic concept. So, so far he had Masked, he had Texas Ranger, he had Vigilante, he had Big White Horse. And he turned it over to Franz Stryker. Uh, Stryker took those notes and began to kind of rework it from an earlier script that was called Covered Wagon Days. And he kind of started putting these characters together and, uh, you know, plugging some holes and it just kind of all came together. Uh, there's a letter from Trendle that's dated January 30th, 1933. And it does, in fact, give Stryker full credit for creating the characters. So why is Stryker given that credit? Well, it is believed that uh, once he received those notes from Trindle about you know the, the, his basic idea, uh, he began developing this very specific, very visualized version of who the Lone Ranger should be, describing him as just over six feet tall and weighing 190 pounds. He said that the Lone Ranger should have a good working build for a, a Western hero, uh, that he was a brawny man and that he rode this super horse with these silver horseshoes, that he would naturally have the finest possible equipment, including ivory-handled guns. Uh, the whole idea of silver uh, in, in the Lone Ranger uh, mythos comes from Robin Hood that striker loved Robin Hood and Robin Hood had the silver tipped arrows that flew the straightest and the far, uh, furthest. So he passed this idea along to the Lone Ranger, but instead of arrows, he gave him silver bullets and he gave them uh, his horse silver horseshoes. Uh, in fact, the, the, the whole anthem of Hyo Silver was not even identified until much, much, much later in the series. As far as Tonto, which is really kind of the reason for the podcast today. Uh, that character was not the even initially uh, part of the series. He doesn't even appear in the early radio dramas until about the 11th episode. Uh, he's originally created basically as a character just so that John Reed, the Lone Ranger, had somebody to talk to. So if you're out there and you're this lone vigilante, you're the, the lone ranger, you're alone and you're riding on the, on the plains, across the plains of, of West Texas, you can't just trot along on your horse talking to yourself. You have to have somebody that you can talk to. So that is kind of how uh, Tonto uh, was, well, why Tonto was created. There are two kind of conflicting stories uh, over uh, how the character was born basically the first one like i said comes from that 11th episode that aired on the 7th of december 1938 uh in that broadcast uh there's a character named cactus pete and he tells the story of how the masked man and tonto met according to cactus pete 
uh, Tonto had been caught in an explosion when two men uh, blew up a gold mine with dynamite. One of the men wanted to kill the wounded Tonto, but the Lone Ranger, being the champion of justice that he is, he arrives just in the nick of time, and he forces the two uh, prospectors to administer first aid to, to, to the wounded man. The miner, though, decides then that he's going to keep Tonto around. And the only reason that he wants to keep Tonto around is to make him the fall guy because the prospector, miner, has this evil plot to murder his partner and blame it on Tonto. Uh, of course, the Lone Ranger would, would ne- have no part of that. And he foils both plots. Uh, and for no real reason at all, it's as to why Tonto decides to travel with him, he just joins up and they continue about their business uh, for the rest of the series. So that is the first origin story of Tonto. In the second version of the origin story, this one was given in in a few later episodes of the radio program. And if you ever want to hear any of these, uh, a friend of mine named Dion Baia over at uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers uh, podcast. Uh, it's a fantastic podcast, and I encourage you guys to, to listen to that or check it out. Uh, he turned me on to this app that you can get on the App Store, and it's basically uh, called Old Time Radio. Uh, it's a streaming app, and it has hundreds of episodes uh, of different shows from The Lone Ranger to uh, Tennessee Jed, The Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, you have crime shows from uh, Dragnet, uh, Gangbusters, Perry Mason, uh, all the old radio dramas. You have adventure shows, Tarzan. You have uh, I Love Adventure, Spy Catcher, Superman, uh, all of the old-time radio shows. And that's where I've got a lot of these these uh, clips from, which I'll be playing for you here in just a quick second. But the second version uh, is given where Tonto rescues the sole surviving Texas Ranger <laughs> of a party that was tricked into an ambush by the outlaw Bush, Butch Cavendish. Tonto somehow recognizes the ranger as someone who had saved him when they were both boys. And this is where he refers to him for the first time by the title Kimosabi, explaining the phrase means, quote, faithful friend, or, quote, trusty scout, end quote, in his Comanche slash Potawatomi language. with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. This is the story that tells how Toto once saved the Lone Ranger. riding westward across desolate country. They were looking at the tracks of a wagon train, 
when suddenly a thin young man stepped from behind a big boulder. He held a rifle to his shoulder and shouted, Hey, in or I'll shoot. Oh, oh, oh. That's it. Now get off those horses and don't try to reach for a gun. The Lone Ranger and Toto dismounted slowly. Easy, steady, Then the masked man dropped his hand with lightning speed and fired from the hip. His bullet smashed the rifle and sent it flying from the young man's hands. Now raise your hands. Search him, Toto. If he has any other weapons. I haven't. I should have known better than to try to hold up a masked outlaw. I'm not an outlaw. You don't look like one. I'm not. I held you up because I hope to find food in your saddlebags. What's your name? Wingate. Dave Wingate. What are you doing alone in country like this? I was with a wagon train. It passed here. Why did you leave the train? I was driven away. Why? I didn't do anything wrong. I was framed by Cap Sanders. Cap Sanders? He was hired as wagon master. Every night he posted guards to watch for dangerous redskins. Two Indian dangerous, but Crow Indian friendly. One of our best friends is chief of the Crow Indians who live north of here. Dave, I want to hear how you were framed, but first we'll prepare a meal. Oh, I'm near starved. Okay, so that was from the original radio broadcast in 1938. And if you're interested and you want to hear the whole thing, uh, check out that old-time radio app uh, if, if you want to hear those. So there's so much to talk about with that clip from the use of the term redskin, which remember, we've be always been told that that is a term meant to honor us, uh, to Tonto speak, to uh, the character portraying uh, the acting uh, of, of, of all the characters. Uh, but I'm going to start first with um, something that you did not hear in the clip, and that is Kimosabi. What exactly does Kimosabi mean? It is a very complicated phrase that has divided scholars and fans alike for years. As of this moment, uh, here in the Sweat Lodge Fitness Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there is no true definition or conclusive evidence or roots to where that came from. The writer, Fran Stryker, himself, he offers zero explanation as to where he, he got that from. And it doesn't really help that Tonto's backstory is deliberately left mysterious. And his tribal affiliation is very ambiguous and very generalized. On the radio show, Tonto is described as Potawatomi. The problem with that, though, is that the Potawatomi tribe did not live in the Southwest where the show takes place. The Potawatomis are from uh, the Great Lakes area. They're, they're Plains Indians from, from the Western Great Lakes area, near uh, nowhere near the Southwest where, where the show is set. There are so many different theories with no conclusive uh, explanation as to where the term comes from. Uh, some linguists believe that Kimosabi is an Apache word that means white shirt. In Navajo, uh, it is believed that the word could mean soggy bush uh, or soggy brush or shrub. Yet another says it's a Spanish term for uh, without knowing. Uh, sometimes it's a slang word for fool. And yet uh, my favorite probably is from Farside comic writer slash cartoonist Gary Larson uh, in his uh, 
cartoon, he says that the Kimasabi means horse's rear end. So if there's anybody out there that's Apache that's listening, if there's any Navajo uh, friends that are listening, uh, you know, let me know. Is, is that right? Is there a word um, in Apache or is there a word that's in uh, Navajo that, that is Kimosabi? Let, let me know. Uh, the, the real truth, though, is that Stryker most likely got the word from a Boy Scout camp. Uh, there is a camp near Mullet Lake uh, in Mackinac, Michigan that's called Camp Kimosabi. The camp was established in 1911 and was actually run by the father-in-law of the show's director, Jim Jules. It was maintained and it was operated, Camp Kimasabi, until 1940. We know this actually exists because there's numerous photos and newspaper clippings to prove it. But the question still remains is, what does Kimosabi mean? Jewel, who owned the camp, her father-in-law owned the camp and ran the camp, says that it meant trusted scout. But let's be honest, most of the opinions, and maybe it's just me, or, or these language experts that you see on TV, is it just me or are they all white? All of these experts in these Native American language are all Hutkies, and they all have an opinion on what words mean. So, I don't know. Uh, who are you going to believe? Some of them, though, uh, these so-called experts, attribute it to an Ojibwe word. Uh, the, the Ojibwe word is uh, Gimuzabi, which means to peak, or he who peaks, and as perverted as that sounds, there are several words with that same gimuj uh, prefix that can mean, secretly mean, to sneak up on someone. And this is all in Ojibwa. Uh, gimosabi is pronounced pretty much the same as kimosabi. So bingo? Is that is that possibly where the, the term comes from? So it's been established, though, that Camp Kimosabi was in an area inhabited by the Ottawa, who spoke a dialect of Ojibwa, which uh, the same, has the same word, Gimuzabi. And there was also Potawatomi Indians in the region who spoke a language with similar words. So the only conclusion that I can make, if you can figure all of that out, is that the term trusty is all whitewash, and I, I say that uh, without the quotes, and that Kimosabli really just means scout. But if there's anybody out there that wants to take this on or, or investigate further, please let me know what uh, other research that you have come up with. Okay, the next topic of conversation is Tonto's tribal affiliation. Uh, what tribe does he belong to? If it Tonto speaks Potawatomi, and he is Potawatomi, which, you know, it was stated in the show, then why is he in the Southwest? It's generally well known that uh, and established that the Potawatomis are from the Great Lakes region uh, up near Michigan, where the show originated from, the actual show. Uh, but by the early 19th century, uh, unfortunately, as it's, you know, as history tells us, most of the Potawatomis had been relocated to the Midwest. Now, the regalia is also very different. Uh, 
contrary to popular belief, and I think it's hopefully well known by at this point, that not all tribes incorporated or wore headbands or headdresses. The Potawatomi elders, uh, forefathers, they wore turbans, and those turbans were made from cloth. Before the trade, you know, before they discovered trade, the turbans were made from otter and beaver skins. And if you ever look at the sketches of, you know, George Winter, a famous Potawatomi chronicler, uh, you will see that uh, a lot of them had these very rich crimson shaw type headband or turbans on. And they were very long and they were, you know, gracefully fell over the shoulders. You will also note that many of the Potawatomi wore trade silver earrings. And he, like I said, chronicles all of those in his sketches. Uh, also, they fared well in the fur trade because you will see lots of, they will be, you know, dressed in fur, especially during the winter time where they wore robes. A lot of them wore these robes, fur robes. But the men typically just wore breechcloth leggings and deerskin shirts, and that is not what Tonto wore. Now, somewhere down the line, Tonto's tribal affiliation switched, and he all of a sudden became Apache. Now, that seems to be more culturally correct to where the show takes place, because the Apaches are you know from the southwest area. Apaches were located mainly in the southwest Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and there's so many different bands of Apache today, including the Kiowa Apaches, the Plains Apaches, uh, the uh, Tont there's even a, a band called the Tonto Apaches. Uh, they wore, their regalia, wore leather war shirts, similar to what the character wore uh, in the 18... In the 1800s, many Apaches, though, started to wear white cotton long shirts with pants. And they got this from trade with the Mexicans in that area. The war shirts were often fringed, and they were uh, had beaded designs on them, uh, Apache designs. And then, like we said, sometimes they actually did wear the more, uh, you know, stereotypical leather or cloth headband around their heads and that's kind of where that comes from so apache seems to be more uh correct as far as regalia and as far as uh you know location uh as to where where the show takes place now the actors who portrayed tonto over the years do you think that they went out and found apache or potawatomi indians to portray the character of course they did not <laughs> Uh, he was actually originally uh, portrayed by Shakespearean actor John Todd, and he was white. And that was the uh, clip that you heard in the radio program that you that you listened to. But in the Republic movie serials, he was portrayed by uh, this guy named Chief Thundercloud, a.k.a. Victor Daniels, who was a falsely claimed Cherokee slash Creek. And we'll talk about him here in just a little bit. Uh, but he was most famously played uh, by Jay Silver Silverheels in 1949, where they finally got a Native American actor to portray a Native American character. Uh, and then he was also portrayed by Michael Horse in the movie that we're going to 
that we're talking about here in just a bit, who is Apache. And then, of course, and I've tried to keep this as Johnny Depp free as I possibly can. He, he was portrayed in the movie uh, 2010, I guess. I never saw it. Uh, Lo- the Lone Ranger Disney movie uh, by, by, by Johnny Depp. John Todd. Oh, John Todd. He was an American Shakespearean actor. Uh, he was a part of show director James Jewell. He was part of their his repertory theater company. He played many, many different roles on all of the radio dramas that was produced by Jewels and the, the radio station WXYZ. He even played the part of the local sheriff on a lot of the earliest episodes of The Lone Ranger. But, as stated before, on the 11th episode, he stepped into his most famous role of Tonto. Now, Todd was a stocky, baldy man of Irish descent, shockingly red hair. Uh, And when the show became as popular as it was, they wanted these characters to start making public appearances. Well, you cannot have a Irish, balding, redheaded guy uh, out there, uh, you know, during public appearances, you know, shaking hands with kids. That's not what they expected at all. So for public performances, he was replaced by a Native American performer. So he played Tonto for the entire radio run. In fact, he was the only original cast member left by the final broadcast, which happened on September 3rd, 1954. Uh, He was briefly replaced by a college-educated Native American, but he proved to be very difficult when he refused to perform the Me Do, Him Go, Tonto speak. And he was immediately fired, and Trendle rehired Todd back. Now, once the show had gained enough popularity, they began to produce movie serials uh, based on the radio dramas. Now, uh, a series of, I think, 15 different little 15-minute movie serials were coming out in theaters. And what happened was Republic Pictures provided this film serial with Chief Thundercloud, and I, I put that in quotes, in the role of Tonto and a man by the name of Robert Livingston as the Lone Ranger. Now, Thundercloud, a.k.a. Victor Daniels, his background is rather sketchy at best. He claims that he was born from Cherokee-slash-Creek descent in Indian Territory. Although now that has been disproven, he was actually born in Arizona, and he worked at the on the rodeo circuit there in Arizona. He was a, a miner, he was a boxer, and he was sort of like this tour guide before coming a, becoming a stuntman in 1935. He started going by the name Chief Thundercloud as supposedly uh, in an honorary capacity, even though it was just a stage name. He, he had no tribal affiliation. He had no honorary, you know, Indian name. Uh, he was just a, a fraud, <laughs> to, just to put it kindly. Uh, but not only was he famous for playing Tonto, he actually once donned a fake prosthetic nose 
and portrayed Geronimo in a 1950 film called uh, I Killed Geronimo. And I put my tongue firmly in cheek when I say that. The next actor, though, is probably the most famous actor to ever don the deerskins. And he was a man by the name of Jay Silverheels. Now, uh, he was the first real Native American actor to tackle the role on the television series, which ran from 1949 to 1957. He is an indigenous Canadian actor. He was the grandson of a Mohawk chief, uh, A.G. Smith, and Mary Wedge. He was an excellent athlete who excelled in lacrosse. He was also a Golden Gloves boxer. Uh, he was on the national, the Canadian national team uh, for lacrosse, and they were on tour in the United States. And they stopped in Los Angeles, and he caught the eye of the comedy actor Joe E. Brown. And he so impressed him on the field, the lacrosse field, with his athleticism that Brown encouraged him immediately after the match to go and do a screen test. That screen test led him to becoming a stuntman. And he began doing all of that by the name of Silverheels, Jay Silverheels. His, his original name is Smith. And he got the name Silverheels. He adopted that from the nickname that he was given as a lacrosse player. So in the 1940s, he played many, 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 in, in many major films with some real heavyweights uh, of Hollywood history, uh, Tyrone Booth, uh, Humphrey Bogart, Jimmy Stewart, Bob Hope, and of course, uh, old iron butt himself, John Wayne. In 1949, however, he was cast as Tonto on the television series, television series The Lone Ranger. Uh, for the, the run of the television show, Silver Hills has later been quoted as uh, despising that character. And once the uh, television show ended, he often parried him on many late night talk shows. Uh, Tonto was, he, he complained that Tonto was never a really deeply developed character and that he was usually just regarded as a side, as the sidekick role. And Silver Hills often found himself expressing that frustration uh, all the while playing the character with a dignity rarely accorded to Indians on screen during that time. Uh, in 1960, Silver Hills started a workshop to support the work of Indian actors. One of the Indian actors that came through his workshop was a young man by the name of Michael Horse. Uh, Horse is born in Arizona, and he is of a Yaqui Mescalero Apache descent. Uh, he is an actor, he is a stuntman who appeared in many films and television series such as Twin Peaks, Passenger 57, and even Smoke Signals. He sort of failed into acting after a brief rodeo stint. He did a couple uh, bit parts to kind of earn a little bit of money. He said that he was very frustrated with the roles that were offered to him because he felt that the roles dealing with indigenous people were, were stupid <laughs> and that, uh, you know, demeaning. Horse was, like I said, one of the, the actors that studied with Jay Silverheels uh, in the acting workshops and uh, Horse says, you know, uh, his time spent with, with Silverheels was that uh, he was such a good actor and he was an amazing person. 
Uh, he knew his teacher wasn't fond of the Tonto role. Uh, he says, Jay still came off, though, with such dignity that I thought I could use his foundation as a way to develop the character further. And that is exactly what he did when he went on to portray Tonto in the movie today, Legend of the Lone Ranger. He said, I just wanted a chance to do something more with that character. Uh, he is, has been regarded by many critics as probably the brightest spot in the entire film. The character of the Lone Ranger was a springboard for Horse, though, to better showcase his work not only as a painter, uh, he's also a jeweler and, and an actor. This led him, like I said, to be being cast as Deputy Tommy Hawk uh, in the David Lynch cult classic Twin Peaks. And then, of course, most recently, the most recent actor to uh, portray Tonto is Johnny Depp. We're not going to talk about him. Let's talk a little bit more about Tonto and Tonto, something that has been uh, the burr under a lot of, of Indians' hides, and that is the Tonto speak. One of the most degrading characteristics about Tonto was his speech pattern. Sherman Alexi, the writer, described it as Pigeon English. That right, Kimosabi. Him say man ride over ridge on horse. For decades, decades, Native Americans were portrayed in fiction speaking in this form. Ugh, how, mmm, pale face. Most people assume that it's just some baloney Hollywood ha, whitewash hooey fooey. But there have been actual wax cylinder recordings of dead Native American languages, some of them speaking in a way that kind of, sort of, if you look at it, kind of squinty-eyed, uh, resembles that Tonto speak. Now, I've never heard them. I've never actually heard those recordings, but I have read the transcripts. And sure, if you want to look at it, that it's Tonto speak, sure. But the cylinders that I have heard, they do exist because the University of Berkeley in California has thousands of these wax cylinders that contain hundreds of dead Native American languages. It's heartbreaking to hear some of these because language is so important in our culture. It's, it's basically, it is our culture. And when we lose our languages, we lose a huge, huge part of who we are uh, as Native Americans. This is the voice of Vichy, a California Native American, the last known speaker of the Yahi language. It was recorded over a hundred years ago on a wax cylinder one of thousands archived here at the University of California, Berkeley. The collection includes more than 100 hours of audio, documenting 78 different indigenous California languages, even some that are no longer spoken. But time has taken its toll. The existing versions of them sound terrible. Um, they're full of noise. Um, you can make out that there's sound. You often can't actually tell what the sound is. Berkeley linguist Andrew Garrett is part of a team working to save these rare recordings. 
Now, if that doesn't anger you, I don't know if we can be friends. You know, hearing those those languages being spoken, those lost languages that that being spoken on those on those wax cylinders, it's just further evidence as to how the the links of that the United States government went to to eradicate the, the Native Americans uh, in the country. It's infuriating. It's heartbreaking. It's also it makes me want to learn more. It's it's inspiring in a way because it just it does make me want to learn more and and you know try to to revitalize that because like I said you know the songs are in our our languages our medicines are made from from the languages you know our ceremonies are are in the languages and, and once those are you know once the language is gone we lose all of that and to me like it's so important that we continue to you know try to preserve as much of this as we possibly can so that it's not lost for our future generations so like i said to hear these these wax recordings uh i i know they exist and the fact that the tonto speak is is supposedly captured on a few of these that i cannot say that that i've never heard those i've only read the transcripts but today you know that that's a common trope that has sort of fallen out of favor due to racial sensitivity as well it should you know it's not known you know did striker or the actors you know hear those cylinders i highly highly doubt it and i can assure you though it is not the way that natives speak and it is not an accent it is not anything that's historically correct um, as far as, as the research that I have done. So uh, my favorite, you know, sort of gag concerning the, the Tonto speak is, is in the movie The Outlaw Josie Wales. Uh, there's a scene there with, with Will Sampson, a Muskogee Creek actor from Oklahoma, and Clint Eastwood, and he asked him, uh, he asks him, Are you be ten bears? And Will Sampson, without missing a beat, says, I am ten bears. And I, that is my absolute favorite scene in that film uh, and one of my favorite scenes of all time. So, uh, again, make up your own mind as to far as the Tonto speak where, where that comes from. But I present the, the evidence as I found. Whoo, okay, I know that was a lot to digest. That was a lot of, a lot of foundation that, that I built for you to sort of get to this moment, the review of The Legend of the Lone Ranger. I gave you some history. I gave you a little bit of the common Hollywood tropes that you find dealing with Native American characters. So if you need to go to the kitchen and get yourself a big ladle full of soft ghee or, or whatever you need to sit back and, and, and listen to the actual film review, here we go. Appreciate you hanging in there with me. If you haven't seen the film, please check it out. Uh, I'm getting ready to spoil the crap out of it for you. But the film opens with a title card that reads uh, Texas 1854. And across the horizon, you see some dust kind of kicking up. And there's this Indian boy on horseback. And he's being chased by three bad hombres, each taking a shot at him. Uh, the boy, the Indian boy, cuts through some sagebrush and he gets knocked off his horse by a low-hanging branch. He rolls off his horse down this embankment and he's kind of pulled to safety uh, by this unknown hand. Well, the, the Indian boy kind of looks over and he sees this, this, this white kid 
that's dressed somewhere between Tom Sawyer and the Amish kid from Witness. Uh, the baddies have been momentarily distracted with the chase of the Indian boy because just down the river, the real action is happening. Uh, there's a ranch being torched and its residents being ambushed by uh, the Cavendish gang, Butch Cavendish. Now, the white boy kind of sees what's going on and he kind of starts running towards the smoke and the Indian boy is kind of chasing him, you know, coming up from behind him. They both kind of run up onto the scene uh, of the of the house and the, being torched and the horses being captured uh, or, or uh, uh, rustled. And they run up just in time to see the boss baddie, Butch Cavendish, shoot the, shoot the boy's mom. And it is a really gut-wrenching scene as this child watches his mom shot right in front of him. Uh, of course, the, the men ride off and, you know, hooting and hollering and uh, patting each other on the back for a job well done. And they leave this, this kid here uh, holding his, his mother's head in, her, in his arms. Uh, of course, she, she dies. And it's at this point that the Indian child uh, kind of sees what's going on and realizing that this boy is basically left to, to starve to death. And he decides to offer his hand in friendship. And he helps him on the painted horse and the, neck, and the two ride off into the sunset. For the next year, uh, John Reed, who's the boy's name, he's adopted into this tribe. Uh, we get a very sweet montage of him learning how to shoot with a bow and arrow. He's learning how to wrestle. He's learning how to spearfish and all other sort of kind of gimmicky Native American activities. He's living some sweet life on the res uh, until one day his brother John comes to pick him up. Now, John doesn't really want to go you know the young boy doesn't want to go you know he says you know this is my home you know these are my this is my family but you know you're my brother so i want to go with you well the young indian boy who we you know learn is tonto doesn't you know want the boy to go either so there's only one thing left to do and that is to take a knife from his pocket and slice each other, uh, hit himself and his new friend on the palms, and they sort of like lock hands in like that that classic Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, Carl Weathers pose from from Predator. You know, they like slap hands and the blood's dripping down. And the very last thing that that happens before the young John rides off with his brother is that Tonto kind of gives him the silver amulet, saying that they'll be blood blood brothers for life. And, you know, that, that he will always think about him and that he always has a home there uh, among the tribe. So here you get the title screen and you get all of this stuff that's going on. Um, and we kind of cut back, you know, we pick back up some 20 years later uh, with John, who has now made him, he's now an attorney. He, he's a lawyer. He's aboard this stagecoach and they're heading west to start. He's heading west to start up his firm. Uh, it's not too long, though, before the stagecoach comes under attack by some dusty outlaws. And there's this really keen stunt here uh, where the bad guy, uh, one of the bandits, kind of leaps onto the lead horse, uh, Yakima Canut style, from the John Ford film uh, Stagecoach. This uh, scene was shot during the second week of filming. And uh, like I said, 
the person who did the stunt, his name is Terry Leonard. He was a legendary stunt man, and he was trying to imitate the Yakima Canut under the horse scene from that John Ford movie, uh, Stagecoach. He felt, though, that Canut had passed through the gauntlet of hooves so quickly that he, the audiences didn't really get an opportunity to uh, absorb what they had just seen or even appreciate that maneuver. So Leonard said, you know, I'm determined to stay under that carriage longer so that the camera can capture every pounding heartbeat of danger uh, during that scene. The stunt man, when, when he got underneath there, Terry Leonard, he kind of started freaking out and he got scared and he wasn't sure he was going to be able to pull off the stunt. So his nerves kind of got the best of him uh, when he got stepped on. As soon as he, got, he gets stepped on, he's tossed underneath the wagon wheel and the entire stagecoach runs right over his legs. Uh, Leonard's, you know, at the time he thought to himself that he actually cut his legs off and he just lay there in a heap um, after the stunt had been completed. Uh, fortunately, though, he really only kind of suffered uh, a very bruised bones. He was airlifted to a hospital, and that accident remains in the final cut of the film. So for the very first like 15 minutes of this film, uh, it is a really like uh, keen stunt, and, and check it out. After that near-death experience <laughs> that, that you get to witness, uh, the, the, the bandits kind of get the stagecoach to slow down and then finally stop where they start kind of going through the passengers. There's this Asian guy on board. There's this, the, this woman on board named Amy Stryker who we'll learn about. And they kind of start going through like empty your pockets. And they realize that there's not really much of anything valuable on board, uh, but kind of letters and government papers. And that's kind of when they start to turn their attention to that, that female, the lone female passenger, uh, Amy Stryker, which has to be a nod to writer Fran Stryker. Uh, but anyway, well, when, once they kind of turn their attention to her, you know, that's more than old John Reed can take. And with the help of a knife-throwing Asian passenger, the, pa uh, the bandits are subdued, and we get for the first, the first real taste of Reed's morals as he began, begs the Asian guy to please don't kill the bandits. See, the Lone Ranger, he lives with his code of conduct, and it was laid down by the creators, uh, George Trendle and Fran Stryker. This is an actual list of the Lone Ranger's creed that, that they created for the character. It is, quote, I believe that to have a friend, a man must be one. I believe that all men are created equal and that everyone has within himself the power to make this a better world. I believe that God put the firewood there, but that every man must gather it and light it for himself. I believe in being prepared physically, mentally, and morally to fight when necessary for that which is right. I believe that a man should make the most of what equipment he has. I believe that this government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall live always. I believe that men should live by the rule of what is best for the greatest number. I believe that sooner or later, somewhere, somehow, we must settle with the world to make payment for what we have taken. Uh, I believe that all things cannot change, that all things can change, but truth and that truth alone lives on forever. 
And I also believe in my creator, my country, and my fellow man. Now, guys, I'm telling you, that is actually the, 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 the creed of the Lone Ranger. Not only does he have a creed, the writers also came up with a guideline to which the character uh, had to remain consistent. And those guidelines were that he is never seen without his mask or his disguise. He's never to be captured or held for any length of time because if he's captured, that means that gives the bad guys the opportunity to remove the mask, thus revealing his identity. Uh, at all times, he uses perfect grammar and precise speech. Uh, no slang. The, the Lone Ranger is never to use slang. Um, he only has guns. He only uses his guns uh, when needed and that he never shoots to kill. He only shoots to disarm. And that he, you know, even when he disarms, it always has to be painless as possible. That he never wins against helpless odds. That he only offers his aid to individuals or small groups. He never offers them to, you know, larger groups. And that he does not drink or smoke uh, in saloons in the film and in uh, the radio show. They should be interpreted as cafes. So that is the guidelines to which the character was developed. So anyway, uh, they arrive into town. The stagecoach arrives into town, this town called Del Rio. And we are uh, treated to this amazing plot song, which tells us everything that, the, that we need to know. Now, plot songs are songs that are kind of placed in music that you know contain key plot points to the movie. Uh, or basically tell you what's happening in the film. And this is the very first of the plot songs that you'll get to hear in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Del Rio was a town in trouble, a town with a gun in its back. Flaked the crimes that just wouldn't stop and cursed for the sheriff who wore black. So you'd think they'd be suspicious, but simple folks rarely are. They're willing to trust their law to just about any man who wears a star. Whoa. Uh, that plot song was delivered by country western legend Merle Haggard, who serves as the narrator of the film. So, uh, anyway, like I said, the plot song tells you everything that you need to know about Del Rio that it's a town in trouble, that it's plagued with crime, there's a crooked sheriff, the town folks are dumb and naive, and they put their all their faith in this crooked sheriff. And I, I love those plot songs, those little plot rock songs. So the stagecoach pulls up, and they're sort of greeted by a, 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 part, a greeting party. One is a newspaper editor, uh, that is Amy Cavan, or excuse me, that is Amy Stryker's uh, uncle, we also see Dan uh, Reed, who is John's brother, and they all kind of, and the sheriff. They all run out to greet the, the stagecoach, which has arrived into town. The bandits that uh, they've sort of rounded up uh, are also on board the stagecoach, and we learn that they are from the Cavendish gang. They're immediately handed over to the sheriff. We also see that you know John and. Uh, Dan have this fantastic little bit of dialogue where, you know, the older brother giving the talk about, you know, how dare you return back to the frontier? I sent you away so that you could make something better of yourself. And you're a lawyer and you, you, there's no reason for you to come back here uh, only for John to, to say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, uh, I, I, 
I return to the frontier because this is where I belong. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you can take the frontier out. Of, you can take the man out of the frontier, but you cannot take the frontier out of the man. Uh, during this kind of, you know, uh, introduction, we, we also uh, learn what a real hatred that Dan has for uh, the outlaw Butch Cavendish. And that is mainly his catalyst for joining the Texas Rangers. Uh, we also learn a little bit of backstory of Butch Cavendish, or Cavendish, that he served under General Grant before he was court-martialed. We don't know what he was court-martialed for. Uh, and we get a fantastic line of dialogue where Dan tells John, you know, in Texas, the robbers are outlaws. Uh, in Washington, robbers are elected. And we get then our second of many plot rots, plot, plot rock songs sung by Merle Haggard. This one we learn about Butch Cavendish and he lives undisturbed and that he's waging this private war against Del Rio. Uh, some people think he's a monster and some people think he's crazy, but he's just a really bad dude. Uh, the first order of badness comes where we cut to the scene of Butch executing two lowly scrubs uh even the sheriff you know kind of cowers to him uh you know they bring out the the bandits that the the lone ranger or excuse me that john reed had kind of captured uh in the opening scene and uh he executes them just you know really coldly you know uh point blank uh, Cavendish is played by the always enjoyable Christopher Lloyd. The, the problem that I have with, with this film here, though, is, you know, we don't really get to, to, you know, Christopher Lloyd never gets the opportunity to just go for it and act as crazy as he should. I mean, this is the guy that was in, you know, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Doc Brown and uh, uh, Back to the Future, where he plays these wild, zany, out-of-control characters. And here, he's you can tell that, you know, he... He wants to do that, but he's just not really given the, the, the platform to do it because there's so much story that needs to be told. But uh, later that night uh, is the Day of the Dead celebration, and the Cavendish gang bust into Amy's uh, uncle's newspaper shop, and there, uh, it's called the Del Rio Dispatch, and they start just completely turning the place upside down. Uh, they even go so far as to hang the old man from the rafters and they, uh, you know, shoot the paper boy, Hildago, in the stomach. I mean, it is, it's kind of, again, a, a very brutal scene, old Cavendish, uh, in his, in his gang. But, uh, the Rangers, along with John and Amy kind of arrive on the scene and the sight of the, the, the old man hanging, you know, from his neck by the rafters, it sends the Reed boys' blood boiling, especially Dan. And they are out for justice. They are off to take them in. Uh, during the pursuit, uh, the Rangers sort of chase the gang into this little valley uh, or this little canyon, and they are dynamited and ambushed. All of the Rangers are killed, including Dan. The Cavendish gang, though, makes one fi fatal flaw. They never check the bodies. They just assume that the whole company is dead. What they don't realize, though, is that there is one man, and he is still breathing. He is just barely, but he is still alive. And then we get another awesome plot rock, plot rock songs that tell us how the Cavendish gang knew how to set a trap. 
and that the, they were killed by all the range that they uh, he killed all the rangers and there's a turncoat collins uh who checked out uh the bodies and that he found the reed boys dying side by side so after that little dust up uh, perched high up on a ridge uh there's a lone figure kind of watching this entire thing take place watching the, the the ambush take place uh it's our real hero tonto uh, played by uh, the amazing Michael Horse. Uh, Michael, or excuse me, Tonto rides down into the gap to sort of scope out the scene, and he, he sees a man kind of wearing this silver amulet that he recognizes. It's John friggin' Reed. Boah! I mean, it is the same kid that he that, that, that saved his life many years back. Uh, he brings John into this cave and begins nursing him back to health. He removes all the bullets from his body with this knife. He dresses him with medicine. He prays. He sings over him. Uh, eventually, John comes to, uh, and with one word, Kimosabi. The, the memories of his dear friend fill his mind once again. And, uh, I mean, it is a, a really cool little friendship scene that, that, you, that we get to are treated to. Uh, as soon as he's healthy enough, though, Tonto brings John back to the Res headquarters. And here's one of the very first sort of tropes that you get where uh, all Native Americans live in teepees because they're, they ride in on, and, you know, it's teepees. Again, not true. That is a, a Hollywood whitewash. Not true at all. Uh, most of, you know, if, if we're, you know, holding court as far as you know holding this to to true accountability if indeed tonto was apache that should have been a wiki up camp it should have been a brush house it should never be a teepee if tonto is potawatomi it would have been a wigwam or it would have been a birch a birch bark lodge it again i don't know why uh, hollywood wanted to set us in teepees but they we're always in teepees which is not not at all the case. So once, uh, like I said, John is his healthy and he's dragged back to the groaningly uh, TP camp. Uh, Tonto is immediately reprimanded by the elders of the tribe for bringing in uh, this white man. Why would you bring this white man in, into our in our into our tribe? But he vouches for Reed, Tonto vouches for Reed, saying that if uh, I'm wrong about this white man, I will wear his hair on my lance, uh, which again is, I, I love that little line of dialogue here. Now, once John has basically fully healed, <laughs> uh, what happens is that he, he and Tonto kind of go for a walk. And they're kind of talking a little bit about, you know, you know, thanking him for, you know, saving his life, basically, and that he owes him one. And it is here, though, along this walk that they first lay eyes on the majestic white wild stallion. And John just almost, you know, he's frothing at the mouth, looking at this horse. It's kind of creepy. And he says, uh, one day I'll ride him. I will ride him. Uh, the, the horse is kind of trapped in a gully and, and, and. You know, John and Tonto kind of fan out a little bit, and they uh, they realize that the horse is is trapped, and they kind of start moving some fallen branches, and the horse, you know, escapes out of this gully and looks back, and, and John is just, I mean, almost like licking his lips watching this horse 
right away. Uh, immediately after that, we get the scene where John starts taking some target practice, uh, all the while being mocked by little Indian kids. And, you know, part of the culture that I love more than anything else is how, uh, no filter, how open and truthful native native kids are uh i love that that about our our, our tribes uh i was playing stickball it was one of the very first times that i, I ever played stickball down at ceremonial grounds it was just a social game and there was this little kid uh he was probably about six years old and you know he's like i'm, I'm gonna be with you I'll, uh you know i'll be with you and i said okay you know let me know when the ball comes and so uh you know, we were chasing the ball around and he, we were in the, almost like this little scrum and people are elbowing and kind of shoulder checking each other. And he said, what's wrong with you, man? Why are you scared? Like, why you got to be scared? Get in there and get that ball. <laughs> and so that's just kind of one of those things that uh, I'll never forget that kid. But then again, that's one of those things that I love uh, about Native. One of the many things I love about Native American children is they are not afraid to talk trash to you. So anyway, there's the scene where the kids are mocking John, um, because he cannot shoot uh, anything. He's not hitting any of the targets. Uh, it is then where Tonto offers up some silver bullets, and he explains that the tribal chiefs use silver on their arrows. Again, not true. Uh, and that the silver makes them fly longer and fly straighter, and that this is and more accurate. He says silver is pure and a symbol of justice. And with the acquisition of the silver bullets, uh, you know, John immediately just pow, 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 pow. And he's a perfect shot uh, after putting the silver bullets into his gun. The next thing, though, is the horse. So after freeing the horse, uh, you know, we've got or we get this scene where uh, John like is taking a bathing in, in this little uh, river, I guess, and the horse is just really creepily watching him and you know john you know gets out of the water completely naked and, and kind of starts approaching the horse it's hilarious in a way because again it's the tension there is i'm not sure if it's supposed to be sexual uh, uh you know tension or if it's supposed to be uh you know dramatic but tension but it definitely plays I don't think it plays the way that they intended. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, it's really funny, actually. But anyway, uh, he kind of approaches the horse, and of course the horse rides off, you know, gallops off into the sunset. And it is decided then that uh, he goes back to camp, and he tells Tonto, like, we got to go get that horse. Uh, it's not too long, though, that they ride up, and again, they see Silver. He's, like, prancing around on the plains. And John ever so cautiously dismounts the horse that he rode in on, and he kind of carefully approaches this majestic steed. He's speaking real softly. He's establishing trust. He's able to almost embrace the animal, and he does. He kind of puts his arms out and just kind of wants to hug the horse. Uh, Tonto just walks up with a saddle uh, rig and just throws the saddle rig right on the horse. So it's kind of funny that it's just two different approaches to how to tame this wild beast. A uh, great, great scene. Uh, and then we're treated to another uh, intense montage of riding sequences where uh, John's, you know, trying to break break the horse. And, I mean, it's backed by this pretty good score by composer John Barry. 
uh, who began his career kind of cutting his teeth on old James Bond films, the Roger Moore James Bond films. And he would actually go on, John Barry would go on to score countless other Hollywood classics, such as Golden Child, Howard the Duck, uh, and won an Oscar for Dances with Wolves. So Tonto is kind of looking on approvingly. Uh, approvingly. It's time to uh, learn some quick gun slinging, some quick gun slinging training. John's got his horse. He's got the silver bullets. You know, let's improve on our marksmanship. And uh, he's gotten pretty handy with his six shooters. He's doing all this fancy spinning of the guns uh, that I love in, in Western films. My favorite part of the scene, though, is the speech that Tonto makes where, you know, he explains to, to John, you know, very matter-of-factly, you know, that he was searching for the men who raided his village. And he, he came across the, the, the scent of the ambush. He smelled, he smelled the ambush, the, the gunpowder and, and all that stuff of the ambush. And he tells John that that wasn't what he was seeking, but he was happy with what he found. And he says that even though John is healthy, he is still on the hunt. You know, I'm going to continue this hunt. I will not accept my food from, and clothing from the government, that I am a free man, and I plan on dying that way. And it's here that Tonto basically asked John, join me um, as we begin to hunt for Cavendish. He's learned that Cavendish has, uh, you know, invaded the village, his, his village. And he asked John to join him before he was sidelined. Uh, see, both men have a dog in this fight with, with Cavendish, but it's actually Tonto's idea to lead the charge. And he says, uh, you know, after this is finished, you know, after we've, we've ambushed and we, we've taken our revenge and we've killed Cavendish, that a new Indian nation will, will, will come out of this and will be born out of this and will be strong, will be united, and will be proud. And again, we talk about how, you know, Michael Horace, who portrayed Tonto, really brought a lot of character and a lot of dignity to Tonto. And this is just one of the many examples in the film of how he did that. And, and again, without using the, the stupid Tonto speech or this speech pattern. So after John kind of carefully ref reflects on what he is told uh, by Tonto, he accepts the condition, he accepts the offer, but only one condition that he must avenge his brother's death only under uh, anonymity. So why that is part of the thing, I have no idea. He, of course, this is the final piece to the ensemble. He's, ex he's, you know, needs, he's got the silver bullets. He's got the horse. He's got the marksmanship. He just needs the mask. So literally, literally at the one hour mark in the film, the William Tell Overture kicks in high and the low, the legend of the Lone Ranger actually begins. And as hokey as it sounds in this day and age, the image of this mask Avenger and Tonto dressed to the nines in his war shirt. He's got his hair, you know, pulled back. It's all flowing freely, feathers in his hair. They're riding, galloping full speed across the plains, and that music kicking in, uh, it's still enough to warrant a few goosebumps, I'm telling you. It's, it's a really, really cool scene. Uh, it just means that we are ready for business. The audience knows what to expect. Good old-fashioned vigilante justice, courtesy of the Lone Ranger, and his trusted friend, Brother Tonto, Blood Brother Tonto, 
this scene lasts about 30 seconds and it's probably the most memorable in the entire film. And it's enough to forgive the past hour that we've watched because this is what you put down the hard earned money for. You want to see the Lone Ranger. Uh, the two men ride directly to Del Rio, arriving just as the sun sets. John steps, you know, stops a little bit in the town to oogle Amy Stryker, who really has no real reason to even be in the movie other than to determine the fact that John has a case of the not gays that I'm not gay. I am into women. So that is really her only, she's just set dressing that he's interested in her, but he does nothing about it because going back to the code of the legend of the Lone Ranger, uh, radio show, he's, he doesn't have time for romance, but she's just there to prove one point that he's not gay. Anyway, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. But they stop, after stopping to kind of oogle Amy through a window, John is kind of creepy. Uh, they make their way to this little cafe. And they, there they confront the only survivor of the Bryant Gap ambush. And it's that dirty old turncoat Ranger Collins. Uh, of course, by this point, though, Collins, wrought with guilt, is a drunken mess. Uh, he realizes his role in the ambush. He, he was the person that set the whole thing up. He's just a, a mess and really kind of has no intention of giving up Cavendish. He has no intention of living. He has no intention of really dying. He doesn't really care. Um, but after he receives a stern talking to by the Lone Ranger and he's kind of, you know, fishing for the truth, Whole Collins gets a slug right right before he kind of spills the beans. Collins gets a slug right in the chest, uh, right before he sings about the entire uh, train plot that Cavendish is planning. And the sheriff and his goons bust in with Tonto. Uh, and Tonto's already in shackles, but the masked man is nowhere in sight. So we cut now to Cavendish plotting out this really simple kidnapping slash assassination plot using a model train. And there has to be more to this scene than what's, you know, in the final film because it's so vague. It's literally just Christopher Lloyd spouting out positions, moving this toy train along some tracks. And I feel that there was an opportunity to really let him go and really chew, chew up some scenery and, you know, be the crazy person that we kind of expected him to be this, you know, off the wall, uh, you know, uh, who knows what he's going to do kind of character. But we're really just kind of left by the end of it, scratching our heads. Like, what was that even all about? Because it, it has does nothing to further the plot other than we get to watch Christopher Lloyd kind of play with toy trains. So anyway, the next day, uh, there's an angry mob outside the jailhouse that demanding that the sheriff string up old Tonto. Uh, Tonto had done nothing other than just ride into town with the Lone Ranger. Uh, but Tonto, ever the brave warrior, he stands looking very stoic and unfazed out through the bars. Uh, the narrator doesn't even know what the heck is going on because we get another awesome plot rock song. They lead Tonto up into the gallows. They place the noose around his neck, and just about the time the trap door drops, a shot rings out, splits the rope in two. Again, cue the William Tell overture for like the fourth time in the film. Cue all the bad guys' guns being shot out of their hands, uh, and cue the Lone Ranger atop Silver riding through town. 
Tonto leaps onto the horse, and the two ride out in a cloud of dust. Again, this is probably the second most memorable scene uh, growing up as a kid, uh, getting to watch this. The next thing that we see is the president, the president on his way to Del Rio, again played by Jason Robards. And on board this train is not only Grant, but is also Buffalo Bill Cody, who is played by Richard Farnsworth. You have Wild Bill Hickok, and you have good old yellow hair himself, George Armstrong Custer. Uh, again, why these characters are in there, I have no idea. They, again, they barely even have any type of uh, uh, lines of dialogue. But you have some pretty heavy Hollywood hitters in there uh, with Robards and Farnsworth. But nothing is really done with the characters. Before the train reaches the town, though, the Cavendish gang commandeers the presidential car. They apprehend him, and they take him to who knows where. The Lone Ranger and Tonto arrive too late, and they all find just an empty passenger car. So they ride back off towards Del Rio. On the way, they stumble upon the Cavendish hideout, though, and they immediately sneak in. Uh, inside the ranch house, though, we see the president, who's kind of shooting pool with Cavendish, and we have like 15 minutes left in the movie. <laughs> Like, seriously, this is how long it takes. To, to, we have 15 minutes left in the movie, and now the plot actually uh, starts to happen. Uh, we finally figure out what Cavendish wants. He wants to establish a new Republic of Texas by altering the Manifest Destiny, the ultimate act of land grab. Uh, meanwhile, Tonto and LR, I'm going to start calling him LR to kind of shorten this a little bit, uh, they're sneaking around all over the ranch. Cavendish gang must have the worst... Uh, you know, uh, watch watchmen of all times because they're literally sneaking all over the ranch undetected. Lone Ranger's wearing this bright white, you know, light blue shirt, white hat. How he's not seen, I have no idea. But they're almost detected, uh, not by the Cavendish gang, but by some entertaining ladies of the evening. They quickly duck inside this uh, shed that's filled with dynamite, and after. Sneaking out all over the ranch, they finally find President Grant, and they spring him from the room. They're armed with dynamite, and the trio strategically detonate this series of explosions designed to shock and awe the old Cavendish gang into mercy. With his entire ranch kind of reduced to a pile of smoking rubble, the old cavalry bugle, you know, sounds. The boys in blue charge in, and they ride through the gate valiantly saving the day cavendish cowardly attempts to escape through the back door with lr hot on his heels uh he's tackled off his horse and a fist fight ensues and after a series of judo chops and you know throws that would make captain kirk very very proud uh, he hip tosses old cavendish into unconsciousness the masked man puts a single silver bullet into his revolver he pulls back the hammer and holds it right up to Cavendish's head. Of course, we all know what's going to happen. Cavendish is brought back to Del Rio, shackled in shame. Did you really think that this Lone Ranger was going to you know, blow his head off? Of course not. He's no John Wayne. He's no Clint Eastwood. He's the Lone Dang Ranger. Uh, the keenest part of this scene, though, I, I thought was hilarious, though, in a way, is that the president actually salutes Tonto. And... Tonto's expression never changes. Uh, he only has these parting words to say to uh, 
to President Grant. He says, quote, you keep your promises about the treaties, to which uh, Grant replies, we'll try. You know, it's like, you know, you keep your promise and, you know, I don't want your salute. I don't want your money. I just want you to promise me that you'll leave our land alone. And Grant, the only response that Grant has is, eh, we'll see. Maybe we'll see about that. Uh, with a quick handshake uh, to which the president, uh, with the president, the do all make off into the, the, the final frontier and again, leaving everyone to wonder, including President Grant, just who is that masked man? So that is basically the entire film uh, of The Legend of the Lone Ranger. It's, uh, you know, I told you as a, growing up as a kid, it was one of my favorite films of all time. And the only thing I can really say about that is, man, was I a dumb kid. Uh, stupid, stupid kid to put such, uh, you know, uh, faith in, in, that, in this film. But I was only you know six or seven years old. What do I know? Uh, this movie, when it comes out, is is a huge bust. Uh, you know, but why? Why was it's not a terrible movie? You know, it's a fun movie. It actually is a lot of fun. But why didn't this movie work? Well, you know, Hollywood has always responded to the demands of the public. Uh, during the fifties and sixties, the screens exploded with with a wealth of western movies from Gary Cooper and High Noon, Alan Ladd and Shane. You have John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, and Rio Bravo. The sixties even brought in a new type of western, uh, the, the the spaghetti western from from Italy. You have Clint Eastwood, you have Sergio Leone, you have groundbreaking Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, and you even have Steve McQueen. You know, making all of these these westerns. But what happened is, you know, films began to change in the 1970s. The ratings restrictions were greatly loosened. Filmmakers began to push up, you know, kind of push the envelope with storytelling. And, and suddenly, instead of John Wayne whooping people with axe handles, you start to see, you know, uh, uh, Robert De Niro, you know, shooting people with a, with a 44 Magnum in Taxi Driver. Uh, you know, films began to be based more on cultural changes going on in the country. Uh, you have movies about civil rights. You have, uh, you know, uh, movies about the hippie movement, rock and roll, gender role reversals. Uh, you see drug use in films, free love, and it all became common fodder for filmmakers. Uh, Westerns during that time just really couldn't adapt with the ever-changing medium. And they're always about the same thing. They're about cowboys. They're about cattle rustlers. They're about Indians. They're about betrayal. They're about evil schemes. Uh, in fact, the only true successful Western films in the 70s were both comedic takes on the genre, and that being Little Big Man in 1970 and, of course, Blazing Saddles in 1974. Uh, films and TV shows like Star Wars and Star Trek kind of had similar Western plots, and they became uh, the new refreshing way to tell the same old story. Into the 1980s, you know, of course, the Western at that point was all but dead. There's a new type of Western that was being told. Uh, you have, you know, a more ambitious uh, film uh, like Heaven's Gate. You get the urban cowboy. You get Tom Horn. You get Escape from New York, which are basically cowboy, you know, Westerns just kind of retold. Then in 1981, the same year The Legend of the Lone Ranger was released, you also get just this massive influx of classic 80s cinema, including uh, Clash of the Titans. You get Raiders of the Lost Ark, Escape from New York, 
Evil Dead, Time Bandits, Mad Max, Road Warrior, Scanners, American Werewolf in London, Stripes, Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1, Halloween 2, Nighthawks, Cavemen, uh, just countless classic 80, 80s movies. So where does The Legend of the Lone Ranger fit? Uh, it's possible that it just kind of got lost in the shuffle uh, of all of those other, uh, you know, amazing films. And the second thing is, you know, reason why this flopped is, is who is this actually marketed for? Is it marketed to children? Is it marketed for, you know, their parents? Uh, is it just this desperate grab for 40s nostalgia? Uh, is it possible that they wanted to create the movie just to create a merchandise toy tie-in, you know, a la Star Wars? This was a, a notorious flop, and it happened even before the movie came out. Uh, it happened in the courtroom. It first started in the courtroom. There was actually a legal battle over who had the right to wear the iconic diamond mask. Uh, with the theatrical success of Superman in 1978, it raised the possibility that audiences would be clamoring to the theaters to see another character rooted in radio and serials on the big screen. The problem with that was the actor, Clayton Moore, who portrayed LR in the television show. He was still under contract to portray that character, and he did so around the country. Basically, his contract promised uh, more the person who could be the Lone Ranger. It promised him that he was the only person that was allowed to, to portray the character. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. Even after the television show ended its run, he made his living doing promotional tours. He would go to grocery stores. He would go to malls. He would go to uh, pay basically any person that would pay him to appear as the Lone Ranger. He did so, and his contract allowed for that. So kind of what happens is the studio was obligated to offer the role to the 64-year-old actor. Clayton Moore at this time 64. Uh, of course, he turned it down, and then he sued. He sued the studio for the right to continue to portray the character uh, until the uh, Los Angeles Superior Court uh, sadly made him remove the mask in 1979. So before production even began on Legend of the Lone Ranger, uh, it was already costing the studio uh, money uh, to, to, to get out of this contract with Clayton Moore. What I love about Clayton Moore, that, that rascally old, old, old codger, was instead of kind of sulk around and kind of feel sorry for himself, Moore continued to travel the country, still in character, wearing the white cowboy hat, wearing the light blue shirt with the ivory-handled you know, pistols, cowboy, black cowboy boots. But instead of uh, a mask, he began to wear these wraparound sunglasses and... It was a publicity jackpot. Uh, he began doing public interviews, bashing this new movie that was coming out. And he built a lot of sympathy for himself just being as an elderly man. And that really hit home with the real fan base of this movie. The children of the 50s who had grown up. 
They had children of their own, and they were the potential audience for this movie. So having Clayton Moore come out and, and publicly bash this film, it did not set well with producers. It did not set well uh, to set up success for this film to begin with. The biggest problem I see with this movie, though, is the man that they chose to replace Clayton Moore. And he, he was a little-known actor uh, named Clinton Spilsbury. Now, like I mentioned before, the studios witnessed this other unknown actor in 1978 named Christopher Reeve. And he is the person who was made Superman fly. And the producers thought that they could strike gold again by casting this unknown model slash stuntman, Spilsbury. Uh, on his IMDb page, this credit, The Lone Ranger, remains his only film credit to this day. Uh, he is said to have the chiseled good looks, but he had this super bizarre personality to go along with it. Uh, according to the Andy Warhol diaries, Andy Warhol met him in 1980, and Spilsbury told uh, uh, Warhol during an interview for his magazine uh, these crazy stories. He began, you know, spinning these wild yarns about how he had been married to this wealthy uh, aristocrat woman uh, of royalty, and that they had this baby together, uh, but. He went on to, you know, say that he didn't spend time at all with the family or the baby because he needed too much time to, you know, concentrate on his own thoughts. Uh, these types of things just delighted Warhol, uh, even going so far as to tell Warhol that he had fallen in love with other men on sets and that he had an affair with actor Bud Court and that he had an affair with fashion designer Halston and... Warhol later remarked how much he loved this interview because Spilsbury blew the whole image of the Lone Ranger in one fell swoop. And on set, Spilsbury was a disaster. He had trouble remembering lines. He demanded that his scenes be shortened. Uh, he would even, you know, show up, you know, maybe under the influence and get into literal fistfights. And he really kind of carried himself uh, as this movie star, you know, this unwarranted Hollywood movie star. It got so bad to the point where uh, by the end of the, the first couple days of shooting, they realized that he wasn't going to work, but they had so much in the can already, they couldn't afford to go back and reshoot anything. So instead of replacing Spilsbury, they just decided to dub his lines. So they hired this other actor and all of the lines that Spilsbury says in the movie are not his, it's not his voice. It is, is another actor dubbing in because Spilsbury just did not have that manly, you know, delivery. Uh, they said that his performance and his lines were like they had been rehearsed or that they had, were, he was reading something. And so uh, all the lines that, that he says in the movie uh, have been dubbed. All right, so along with, you know, the issue of the Western being all but a dead medium, despite the flop that was cast, uh, the casting of Clinton Spilsbury, the biggest problem, I think, with the movie is that it's an origin film. 
And the problem with all origin films, whether it's Marvel movies or whether it's you know Legend of the Lone Ranger, is that they're origin films. The filmmakers need to jam so much into them that it's all exposition, it's all backstory, it's all character development. But once we learn about the characters, what do you do with them? You've already blown an hour of the movie just setting up the Lone Ranger. It leaves very little room for plot. It leaves very little room for story. It, it even le- leaves very little room for secondary characters. Uh, even like Tonto, uh, every time that Michael Horse is on the screen, he just commandeers the screen. You just can't take your eyes off of him. He's a very powerful looking man. He's, he's a very you know, striking uh, cinematic uh, image when, when he's on the screen. Uh, same thing with, with uh, Christopher Lloyd, you know, like I said, you could tell there were scenes that had to have been cut because his character, who, who's the main bad guy, we just get to know that he's bad. We don't really know much more about him other than that. He never really gets the opportunity to let loose. He never really gets the opportunity to be Christopher Lloyd. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's so much time spent on explaining who the character is and very little time left to explore the plot and explore uh, the story. So let's focus now on some of the things that I did like. Uh, I enjoyed the set designs. Uh, like I said, you know, they had built this entire Western town. Uh, that was an expensive thing to do because you don't just wander around and, and you know, in the back lots and find these, these studios uh, anymore. Most of it had been torn down by this point. So, they had to, you know, create the town of Del Rio. They had to create this huge fort slash ranch house of, of Butch Cavendish. They had to create the uh, camp of the Native American camps. And all of those things were beautifully done. Uh, maybe historically wrong, but I really did enjoy the set design. The costumings could have been a little better, but they weren't terrible. They were good. The other thing that I enjoyed about the film was obviously Michael Horse, his portrayal of Tonto. Again, this is the whole reason you need to watch this film, even if you have to fast forward through everything else. Anytime that you see Michael Horse on screen, please stop and, and watch his performance because it, it's really, really good. I like the John Barry score, uh, even though it's kind of phoned in and it's very like a lot of John Barry scores. He takes the main theme and just continues continues to rework it and with different melodies and different instruments and slows it down and speeds it up. But all in all, I really did enjoy the, the John Barry score. I love the stunts in this. The horse riding stunts are pretty remarkable. We already talked about the Yakima Canut uh, tribute that is in this film where the stunt animals died. Uh, so the horse riding is a lot of fun. The stunt work is great. And trust me, the last thing, it is, it's just a whole lot of fun. It's a lot of hokey fun. It's one of those movies that you get together with your friends. You can enjoy it. You can laugh at it. You can scream at the TV. You can, you know, it's just, it's really, it's a good time to sit down and, and you know, watch uh, a, a pretty good movie. Uh, not the best movie, but it's a really good, it's a fun movie that I think that all kids can enjoy. Your family can enjoy. You don't have to worry about, you know, anything uh, too crass being on it or anything like that. It's just a really good film that, that I would recommend to, to families. So there you have it. It's The Legend of the Lone Ranger, 1981. Before we sign off on this episode, I hope you enjoyed it. I want to just kind of go over with you something that I call cigar store groaners. 
Uh, we all kind of know these stereotypical things that you see in motion pictures uh, concerning Native Americans. And I've compiled a list about of 12 things that you commonly see in Hollywood films with Native American characters. So the first one is Drunk Indian. And like I said, these are groaners. These, these are tropes. These are things that um, a lot of, of films you know, concerning Native Americans have in them. So the first one is Drunk Indian. There is no Drunk Indian in this movie. Uh, number two, uh, a white best friend slash girlfriend. Well, as far as Native American characters go, yes, there is a white best friend, the Lone Ranger. Number three, is there a medicine man slash shaman? Uh, bonus points for uh, if a character going on it goes on a spiritual journey. Does does he does he go into the spirit world? The no, the the no characters do that. Uh, number four, is there a white oppressor or on the flip side, is there a white savior? Uh, I guess Butch Cavendish would be the white oppressor uh, in this film and, and his gang. Number five, there is always a native scout or a native turncoat, somebody who's working for the white man. Uh, Estijati, who's working for the Hucky, uh, is there one of those? No, there's not. There's Collins, who is the turncoat of the Texas Rangers, but he's white. He's not Indian. Number six, is there a bar fight? No, there is not a bar fight. Number seven, is there a powwow or is there some type of dance scene? Uh, yes, there is a dance scene kind of going on in the background a couple of times in the film where Tonto is kind of sticking his neck out for John Reed uh, and also when they bring the young John Reed in, into the camp as well, there's some dancing going on. Uh, number eight, racial names that Native Americans are called. There are two in this film. The first one is Redskin. Now remember, we've always been told that that name has nothing to do with anything racial, that it has everything to do with honoring us uh, or, you know, uh, whatever. Redskin is in this. The other one is Injun. That is another racial term that Native Americans are called. I-N-J-U-N, Injun. Number nine, does a character receive an Indian name? Always the characters receive some type of Indian name. Yes, Kimasabi, trusted friend, is what Tonto says, but they can make up your own mind. Number 10, Adam Beach. Is Adam Beach in this movie? Or, bonus points, Gary Farmer. No, neither one of those actors appear in this movie. Uh, number 11, is there a mention of a scalping or is there a scalping scene? Yes, by the baddies at the very beginning of the film. The, the, the men threatened to scalp the young engine, the young boy Tonto. They say it to his face. Uh, there's another uh, mention of a scalping when Tonto tells the elders that he'll scalp John if he's wrong about him and he is, in fact, you know, here to hurt them. And then number 12, and this is always a difficult one to discuss, but it, they're in a lot of Native American films. Is there assault on a Native, on a Native American woman? And we'll get to that uh, kind of as we move the the, uh, the podcast along. We'll talk more about that. That assault could be a physical assault or it could be a sexual assault. And the answer to that question is no. So those are the 12 cigar store groaners for the legend of the Lone Ranger. Speaking of numbers, it is time now to give the legend of the Lone Ranger a grade. Uh, I have devised what I believe is a fantastic 
uh, rating system based on one of my favorite all-time Native American delicacies, the Indian taco. In my humble opinion, I believe that there are 10 ingredients that you need in order to create the perfect Indian taco. So, how does the Legend of the Lone Ranger weigh in on the Indian taco scale? It gets a solid four. Uh, Legend of the Lone Ranger has a big fat piece of fry bread on the bottom. It's got a big heaping scoop of, of meat, a little bit of beans in there. It also has tons and tons of cheese. So on a scale of one to 10, Legend of the Lone Ranger gets, earns four ingredients. Uh, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's one of those movies that you want to sit around, uh, have a few drinks with, uh, laugh at, scream at, howl at. It's, it's a lot of fun, and I highly encourage you guys to check it out if you haven't already. So that wraps up the episode for today. I just want to say thank you guys so much for hanging in there with me. I know this was a marathon one. I promise they're not all going to be 26-2. Most of them will be around the 5K mark. But I just figured there was a lot of information and backstory that I wanted to give to you. Hopefully you were able to keep up. I know sometimes I talk kind of fast. It's just that that Mountain Dew Zero and uh, is kicking in. So thank you so much uh, to Sean Z over at Dad is Metal Podcast for helping me out with some tech support. I want to say thank you to Dion Baia over at Saturday Night Movie Sleepover Podcast. Fantastic podcast. Check them out. I want to say thank you so much to the Pete Kozer family uh, for providing the music today. If you need to get it hold of me for any reason at all for suggestions uh, or comments, uh, whatever you need, you can reach me on the Facebook page at Skoden Cinema. You can also email me at skodencinema at gmail.com. Drop me a message. Rate this thing on iTunes. Uh, be honest with me. Uh, if I something I need to work on, please, please let me know. Constructive criticism is always welcomed. Thank you guys so much. Moro. Hope you guys have a great day. I will see you next month. Uh, be looking for the film that we're going to be watching in September. Uh, I, I, it's, it's probably going to be a tomahawk toss to the ladies. A movie starring Jason Momoa. So for all the Hope Tees out there, this next episode will be for you. Thank you again so much. Skoden Cinema, my name is Turtle. I'll see you next time. The daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. Nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. The Lone Ranger rides again.